Hi, welcome to the State Hornets episode of Spotlight. I am Mercy Sosa, digital editor, and I'm here with Dr. Alma Flores, professor in the College of Education. Hi, Dr. Flores, how are you? Hi, I'm good. <laughs> I previously interviewed um, you for an article that the State Hornet published in around October of this year. It's called Sac State's Latino Community Speaks on Disproportionate Ratios Between Faculty and Students. And you can all check that out at statehornet.com. So give us some background on your journey to Sac State. Okay. Um, well, hi, everyone. My name is Alma Flores, or Dr. Professor Flores. Mm -hmm. um, I use pronouns she, her, hers, and ella. Um, as Mercy said, I am an assistant professor here in the College of Education, or more specifically, the Undergraduate Studies Department. Um, this is my fourth year here at Sac State. It feels like it's it's gone by kind of quickly, although it's a little funky because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I am, let's see, I, I'm born in Jalisco, Mexico, so I'm, I'm an immigrant. Um, but I grew up in Santa Barbara, California, so that's where my, my parents are still there, family's still there. Um, and then I, I, my undergrad was at UCLA and um, my master's at the University of Texas. And then I came back to UCLA for my PhD and that's where I got my PhD in education um, with a specialization in race and ethnic studies. Um, before coming to Sac State, I was a visiting professor at Loyola Marymount University in the department of now is Chicana Latino Studies. Um, so I had those two years before coming here at Sac State. But I'm fairly new to Sac State, um, even Northern California. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I was thinking about <laughs> this on my drive while we hear that. My first time at Sac State or in Sacramento was for my job campus visit. So yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> I grew up in Southern California. My family's there. But I also just really um, fell in love with um, how green everything is here. Um, I remember that was the first thing I noticed, just like how many trees there are. Um, but yeah, I'm new to Sacramento, new to Sac State. It's strange to say that, I guess, now going into my fourth year. But I still honestly still feel quite new. <laughs> yeah, especially having to come here right when you already have a job and you know you have to be here. Yeah, yeah <laughs> four years, it, it goes by pretty quickly. So I spoke to you in summer of 2021 before mm -hmm. um, the semester yeah. had started, um, before the article was, was published. Um, yeah. And we talked about this disproportionate ratio between Latino faculty and Latino students. Um, have you noticed a difference in support for Latino faculty or an increase in Latino faculty? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question, Mercy. Um, so not a lot of, I know it feels like it was so long ago, but <laughs> it's been a semester. So I, I also just want to preface this, like I can only speak, speak to my own experiences. I can't speak to all Latinx faculty here at Sac State. Um, but um, I don't know if I can honestly say that I've seen an increase in support um, or that there are more Latinx faculty um, I'm, I'm an active member, proud member of our union, the California Faculty Association. So I did actually get to go meet the new faculty. Um, and it, it was pretty apparent, right? The still very heavily underrepresentation of Latinx faculty or just faculty of color in general. Um, I think it is nice, like in my college, the College of Education, 
we, we do have new faculty of color, which is great. Um, in terms of support, I, I, I can't say honestly that things have mm-hmm. <laughs> necessarily improved. Um, I can say that I think we're having more conversations about even this broader thing of, you know, we're a Hispanic serving institution. But what does that mean if there's such few Latinx faculty here, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Latinx students, but we're a huge minority on this campus in terms of faculty. Um, so I think those conversations, I will say, have been happening for a long time with faculty of color, with Latinx faculty. But it maybe I feel like there, it's happening now more um, in my college. Again, I can't speak to all the colleges or departments. But I, I do think with, um, you know, summer of 2020 and the racial uprising and the everything that was happening that summer, the pandemic, the, the pandemic of racism, mm-hmm. I think overall as a university, we're having more of these conversations, which is, um, I think, an improvement. But words can only go so far, right? Like I am more interested in actual action, right? Like how mm-hmm. do we put these conversations, these words into action. And that's still TBA, right? Yes. <laughs> or TBD, to be determined. Yeah, and, and you can speak <laughs> on that as you were on the anti-racism planning yes. committee yes. Um, where the university, you know, put together a group mm-hmm. of, of professors to um, basically, you know, look at where the school had gaps in um, its support for, for students of color, mm-hmm. right, and for faculty of color as well right um what are your thoughts on the university's efforts to make the institution anti-racist you know i i being on that committee um was both rewarding and challenging so it was rewarding in the sense that it was good to see um the faculty and staff that was present that was there really committed to improving our campus right to really working towards being an anti-racist campus, and um, and that's a long time commitment. <laughs> it's not like we're gonna get mm-hmm. and we're anti-racist now, right? Like this is work that you continuously have to do. Um, on the other hand, it was also really, I think, taxing. Um, it was there. There was just a lot. It was a lot, right? To basically <laughs> work on. Uh, almost reimagining what this campus can look like through um, an anti-racist framework. And a lot of very emotionally taxing, I think. I think a lot of faculty, staff of color are are carrying a lot of stuff, right, that has been accumulating for some time being here on this campus. And and in many ways, this was also an outlet. And so it was also like a lot of like um, emotions um, and process and making sure that space is there, but also... Um, you know, we have to, we were tasked with creating this this plan, this proposal, which is a lot, right? Like, how mm-hmm. do you take an institution that's been around for so long and make it anti-racist in a year? <laughs> like, that's a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of pressure, a lot of work. I I'm I will say I'm a little bit disappointed um, that um, not I, I would have liked to seen uh, more actions or more just more highlighting of this plan, right? The plan finished, um, we've, it ended up trickling until summer of 2021. 
Um, but the plan officially posted by the start of the fall semester. And it is, if you've had a chance, a very lengthy document. So I don't blame folks if very it's like, lengthy. how do we go through all of this? Because it's a lot. <laughs> but yeah. again, if we think about it through this historical perspective, mm -hmm. like how do we take this institution that and make it anti-racist in a year? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I was, a, a, and I know part of it is, right, we lost a lot of important leaders that um, do this work. Like, we lost um, folks that were leading this plan, like Diana. Um, and so there was this, the fall semester, mm -hmm. it, there really wasn't a lot of action on the plan, right? I know yeah. there had been a plan convocation, and then they pushed it back. And, and I know I saw the recent message from President Nelson that, um, there will be a convocation, I believe, in February. But on my end, I'm like, no, this plan has a, a sense of urgency, right? Like, it's, it's been boiling up for some time that I, I personally would have liked to have seen um, more actionable items from our leadership here on campus. Um, I know things are happening, but again, from my perspective, I think I, I, I wish more was being done because words, again, only get us so far. <laughs> yes. And that plays into, you know, like performative activism. Exactly. And, exactly. you know, that was discussed <laughs> a lot during, you know, the summer. Exactly. Um, and yeah. so to see how like the university is, is handling Very it. Very much so. Feels performative at some, yes. to some extent, yes. potentially. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> This disparity between um, students and faculty have impacts. Um, could you dive into what those impacts are for, for students and faculty? Yeah. I mean, I think for faculty, there's this very real experience of just feeling marginalized on mm -hmm. campus, right? Of not having um, faculty of color to, to, to mentor you, right? Mm -hmm. so, to kind of guide you through this process. I was a first-generation college student. I'm a first-gen, like, no one in my family, like, um, you know, has beyond a high school degree, right? And so all of this is new to me as well. And I know there are a lot of faculty here that also are first-gen, right? But I think there's this added layer of also being a person of color. <laughs> and, and we know um, historically, right, these institutions have excluded folks of color, um, women, women of color. And so there are those added layers that I think uh, make even the marginalization more pronounced. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me personally, it, it has often felt like I don't have the mentors I, I wish I had. I, I definitely have been able to cultivate um, beyond just my college, but I've had to do that, right? I've had to seek out people. And, and it was a really hard transition because I was very fortunate in my graduate program, in my undergrad program, to have had excellent faculty of color to mentor me. And, and honestly, I would not be here had it not been for that those faculty of color that took the time to mentor me. But it just felt like I started my, <laughs> my career as a professor and it was just like cut off. <laughs> um, and it was very much like almost like kind of figure it out on your own. Um, and you know, I, I had to cultivate and seek out those mentors. And, and, and I definitely can speak to that mentorship I've received now. Um, but that shouldn't, like, fall on faculty of color to figure it out. Yeah. Right? And, and that lack of support and that, like, not only in trying to help you, like, you know, figure out the scope of your, your position at this university, yeah. but, like, with issues regarding racism, yeah. that affects the retention exactly. as well. Does exactly. It, does it not? Right. So yeah. I, and 
I am, and this we know from the research, right? Mm -hmm. I think white folks can understand racism, but it's very different to live it, right? And so I can go to a faculty of color, um, and I know to some degree, not always, but to some degree, they will understand, right, what it is to to be, for me in particular, a woman of color, right, and to be in front of a classroom, and, and that um, there are experiences with racial microaggressions, there are experiences of hostility, of alienation, and not having to explain that, um, feels like you have a sense of, like someone has my back. Um, I think for students, right, we also know from the research that it's really important for students to see faculty that look like them. Mm -hmm. Like this improves student retention, student success, and and so it, it benefits the university as a whole to hire more faculty of color because it means students are gonna do better, right, academically. Yes. Um, it also means faculty of color will do better, right? We, we build community, I think. And so I think it has real effects on, like you said, the student level, right? Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, it was really, really important for me to see faculty that look like me teach a class, lead a class. I don't think I would be a professor had I not had those examples, right? Because I, I, if you, you often can't see yourself in X position if no one looks like you in exposition right? yes <laughs> and I, I you know I can still like I, I can still picture that that first class I had with a Latino professor and how impactful that was for me to be like wow like Latinos actually are <laughs> are professors and and then to later see Latina faculty right mm -hmm. also doing that like that was also really pivotal for me to find Latina faculty doing in positions like this to, and to be able to not only rely on their mentorship, but visually, right, see myself in that position. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I can say for myself as a journalism student, as a Latina, I have yet to have had a Latino or Latina professor. That's so disappointing. In my, right? I'm like a junior now. Yeah. On my first and going we're to second HSI. semester. And yes. we're at HSI, yes. yeah. I, I teach, a, you know, I teach courses in education. And, and one of the first questions I ask my students is like, you know, how many black faculty, black professors, black teachers have you had in your education? How many Latinx? And often I am the first, right? Like they've never had the a only like, one. Yeah. I, I mean, I think about my experience. I never had, even my Spanish teacher was white <laughs> when I was in high school. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I never had a Latino teacher I never had a black professor until graduate school. Like, what does that say, right, about these institutions? <laughs> yeah, and if hiring more faculty professor clearly makes a positive impact yeah. on faculty of color and students of color, why are these universities not uh, <sighs> making movements <laughs> to, to hire, to, more, to hire more faculty of color? <sighs> That, I mean, if I had the answer. Yeah. <laughs> there, I mean, there's, a, there's, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of, I will say, responses that I often hear that are inaccurate, right? That faculty of color are just not competitive or we're not out there. Like there's qualified. not enough about <laughs> qualified, right? Which is pure bullshit, if I can swear, because <laughs> I, I know plenty of amazing colleagues that are in doctoral programs that are doing amazing work, 
right? That often, right, are in the job market for for multiple years trying to get these positions. Um, and I and I also know like their work is amazing, right? Beyond just the rigor, it's incomparable to the the stuff that my colleagues are doing. And so they they it's not about qualifications, right? It's not about the number, uh, how many we are. <laughs> I think the structures, the systems of higher education are set up to to marginalize, right? To to even now, right, I'm sitting in a search committee and we're really thinking about how do we make sure that we are, we have a diverse applicant pool? How do we make sure applicants will apply to these jobs, right? Um, but these structures, these systems, these policies we have are not often in favor of historically marginalized faculty. So going back to what being an HSI means, uh, so Sac State is a officially designated a Hispanic-serving institution by the U.S. Department of Education, meaning that the university has over 25% of undergraduate full-time Hispanic students. Sac State also receives funds for BNHSI. Sac State received $8.3 million in federal grant funds after a review process of its proposed projects by a panel of subject matter experts and a review by the federal agency how can they use this money to support uh, faculty and students? That's a lot of money. I didn't even know that exact number. <laughs> um, I think there's there's various ways. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about, and I know other scholars have written about, is um, I think when we hire faculty of color, it's, again, like a handful, right? It'll be like three, four, five. But I think we need to really hire almost like, they call them clusters, like really uh, more than like 10 faculty of color at a time, right? So that those faculty can then build community and sustain themselves as they go through that process, right? So definitely I think hiring obviously more faculty of color is important um, because it's very much tied to like I spoke to, also mentorship, right? I think we need to invest. Uh, so there's two parts, right? There's getting faculty of high uh, faculty of color hired, right? But then it's retaining them, right? Making mm-hmm. sure that they actually stay at Sac State, that they get tenure, and that piece often gets lost. And I think that piece important to that conversation, like I said, is mentorship, right? Like, how are we? Do we have? the structures and systems to mentor faculty of color as they're going through the retention tenure and promotion process. And and I remember, I think early on my time at Sac State, I, I, I think I asked my dean or my chair, like, do we have like a mentorship program, right? And it was kind of like not a very direct answer. Um, and I don't think I ever really necessarily received like, yes, you can go to this X person. and. And so again, it, it fell on me, right, to seek out um, mentors. Um, and what would it mean then to to have an actual like faculty mentorship program, right? We do it for students. It should be no different for faculty, especially for faculty that again have been historically marginalized, excluded, like are, have just not been able to access systems of higher education the same way that white folks, males, <laughs> middle-class folks have, right? Um, so I think investing in the mentorship of faculty of color, 
um, working, re-envisioning the hiring process, right? Like rather than hire one person, hire like a cohort of faculty of color that can then support each other through the process. I also think that our chairs, our deans, the the university leadership needs to do a better job of making sure they are creating a welcoming environment for faculty of color, making sure faculty of color feel like they belong, like they are cared for, (laughs) that they, again, that like cultivating uh, a welcoming environment. And I think as university leaders, like deans, chairs, et cetera, like it starts with them, right? Like they Mm -hmm. set the culture. Um, So that's really another piece. I think we need to really invest in, in training our university leadership to have the tools and knowledge of how to support faculty of color. Because I think I want to say that the desire is there, but often they don't know how to, if that makes sense. And it ends up being like, you teach me how I can mentor you. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it becomes, yeah. you know, what we talked about, like this cultural taxation of having to like teach about what racial microaggressions are, or teach yes. about like how to create a more welcoming environment. Yeah. Cultural taxation is a concept introduced in 1994. Um, it's described as a burden placed on ethnic minority faculty to service the university by <laughs> acting as ethnic representation on committees or to demonstrate knowledge and commitment to a cultural group. Yes. And this is according to a data book um, by the CFA, the California Faculty Association. (laughs) So there's this expectation placed on faculty from administrators to teach them? Yes, I think that's another way to make sure we retain faculty of color, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we tend to be in, what's the word? Like we just get into these over-committed, if that makes sense. So as faculty, right, part of our job is to to provide service to the to the community too, but also the university, and this is done um, through university committees, right? Mm-hmm. And what often happens with faculty of color is that we are often tasked to serve in these equity, anti-racist, but we tend to be over-serviced, right? Like we tend to do a lot of the service, which in the end when you go through your retention, tenure, and promotion evaluation, service is just one component of how you're evaluated, right? You're also Mm -hmm. evaluated in your teaching and your uh, research. And so if you're over service, meaning you're doing a lot of service, (laughs) then that affects, right, your teaching, your research, uh, which are integral pieces of getting tenure and, and being retained. And so the cultural taxation, for me, what that often means, like, and I can talk about it right now because I'm going through it, is, for example, um, letters of recommendation, right? I know all professors must be tasked with it, but I think when you are one of the few faculty of color on campuses, um, understandably, students of color are often drawn to you, right? I was the same way, right? Like, when I had my Mm -hmm. first Latino professor, I was in their office hours, like, <laughs> I wanted to get to know them. Um, all my faculty of color, uh, or all my mentors were faculty of color. They're the ones that have written letters, and I know from their experience, they're writing a ton of letters of rec, right? And it's the same thing now, right, where I I write anywhere from, like, 10 to sometimes 30 letters of rec in a year. <laughs> wow. And I do it because I... I 
like my whole purpose of being in higher education is really to like dismantle to change some of the things that have marginalized folks like myself but other other folks as well that have been historically marginalized right trans students uh, low-income students students that have not been able to access higher education and so it's really hard for me to turn away students of color or students from other historically and so we tend to like and that's service that I think as faculty of color who many of us come from similar backgrounds and have this desire right, to diversify, to change the university, we end up taking a lot of it, right? The same thing with these committees, right? Um, and I don't know if, this, if the, it's this perception in my college, in my department, in the university that equity anti-racist work is just people of color work. And that is a huge misconception, right? We need white folks just as much as we need people of color to be in those conversations, right? Because we are not, we don't, we're not the only ones that make up this university, right? Uh, we need allies or co-conspirators, as Bettina Love calls them, to, to change these structures. And it, it is not fair to also put it on faculty of color to change years of racism that have been mm -hmm. happening um, in higher ed. And so that's what I mean, right? That extra burden, that expectation. And I see it in my college, right? Like who serves in the equity and it's all the faculty of color, right? And, and again, I, I obviously can't speak to my white colleagues, but it's just as important right, that mm -hmm. they also engage in this work, that they also commit to disrupting this work. Because if not, like, we as faculty of color cannot do it alone. And that's where I think allyship, which I really like the way Bettina Love, who is a professor scholar, talks about it. It's, so she moves us from being an ally to being a co-conspirator. And she uses this frame to really challenge what you were talking about, right? This performative allyship where mm -hmm. I'll just show up at the march or yes, I'll <laughs> sign the letter or yes, I'll put a statement out. No, like how are you going to leverage what privilege you have to actually help in this change? Mm -hmm. and, and many of the times that means you're going to lose something, right? Whether it's time. Um, but that's what true allyship means, right? I'm going to give up something in an effort to help change structures. Mm -hmm. And honestly, not a lot of folks are there yet. Like they're willing, right, to show up to the rally, to sign the letter, to put out a statement. But when it comes to, I think, really willingly giving something up, giving up power, giving up some form of privilege, that's, I think, where some of us struggle, right? And I think it's really important. Um, it's important to do that in order to really see true change, mm -hmm. right? And to really also challenge the cultural taxation <laughs> that we were taking on, right? So if you see Alma signing up again or being assigned to another, and maybe someone else should be like, you know what, Alma, you're already on four service like committees. Let me do it, right? Yeah. Or, you know what, Alma, like how about I take this on, you do that? Or, you know what, Alma, how can I help you with this, right? Um, those are the conversations we need to be having with faculty of color, right? That's the mentorship I'm talking about, right? But it doesn't always happen. <laughs> wow, yeah, and then if these white faculty aren't in those committees, mm -hmm. um, and then the, the faculty of color that present, like, 
what the committee has found or has presented ideas have the white faculty been supportive of those ideas yeah and i and i want to just preface like uh, I think racism is not an individual issue. It's mm-hmm. an institutional, historical thing. Yes. yes, white folks obviously benefit from the system. And there were some great, uh, again, co-conspirators that I, I have found here that are white, right, that are doing this work. I, I think about, again, the folks in our union, um, who many of them are white, but they they are out there, right, really, I think, doing the work of anti-racism and fighting for for better quality education for students, but also for faculty, right? And so I think that's an important piece too, right? I think also just as important, I think that um, folks of color um, see themselves in these positions like being faculty members. I think it's important for white folks to also have examples of what it means to be a co-conspirator, what it means to be an ally, right? To see themselves also play a role in the work of anti-racism, that this, again, is not people a people of color problem. <laughs> this yes. is a everyone problem. Yeah. yeah. And going back to, to you being on this anti-racism committee and you being a professor, yeah. you know, you, you fit into all of these roles, but you're also a mom, right? Yeah. Uh, could you I tell am. me how you balance all of these things? Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So there's no true balance that, that <laughs> does not exist. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a mom to a two-year-old, to, to Joaquin. Um, and again, talking about system structures, right? I, I had that very firsthand experience of how these systems, university systems and structures, are not necessarily put in place to support parenting faculty, right? And so... There's this underlying, almost part of the hidden curriculum that you don't have a baby until you get tenured. <laughs> or if you have a baby, right, like you're, you just have to figure it out on wow. your own. Wow. Um, and I think for, for much of my education, I, in many ways, I've, I feel like I, I, I had to sacrifice some stuff, right? And I was, I was kind of fed up with that. So when I was like, I got a job, I was like, I, I, I want to start a family. I'm not going to wait five to six years to start a family, right? Um, but And so I found out I was pregnant during faculty orientation, which was really scary, right? And I'm thinking mm-hmm. now I got, this is one of the reasons why I got so involved with our union, mm-hmm. because I quickly realized there's no support system really set up for faculty of color. And, and I think me as not only a person of color, but also a woman of color, but also a mom, right? Like I also experience how um, right, these systems not only affect me just as a person, but also as a woman, as a mom. Um, and I, I didn't have the support, right? I think parental leave right now is 30 days, right? So you have a baby, you get 30 days, and then you have to come back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is inhumane to the core as <laughs> someone that had a baby like that that is so inc- so i i here in my head i was like i made it i got a tenure track job i'm gonna have a baby i'm gonna have this great like leave like that's another i uh-huh. think of the reasons why i wanted to be a faculty because i in my head i saw the flexibility of being able to to, to raise a family and and family is really important to me 
Um, but again, I quickly realized um, there's not a lot of support for for specifically parenting faculty, right? Um, and so it was really hard. Um, and myself and another colleague have been doing a lot of research on the experiences of parenting faculty. We, in the union, we're, right now, one of our bargaining proposals is to extend or parental leave from the 30-day to a full semester, right? So if you have a baby, you should have, a full, mm -hmm. you should have 16 weeks to spend with your newborn, not 30 days. <laughs> What's the process of, of doing that, like bargaining? Like so it's basically between the university and our union right now, mm -hmm. right? And so the union has come up with these proposals from everything like an increase in pay for faculty, more counselors for students. Like that's a, we were just talking about this um, with some of my fellow union members about how students really need mental health services, but there's so few of them, right? There's like four counselors that service like the whole university, right? Mm -hmm. And how important it is um, even more right now because we're living through a freaking pandemic, right? And a lot of things uh, are affecting folks mentally, right? Whether it's depression, anxiety, and the resources are not there. And so the union presents these proposals to the university like, hey, we want you to hire more uh, counselors for students. We want you to provide um, better parental leave for faculty. We want you to give us a raise. We want you <laughs> to give more security to our lecturers. Mm -hmm. uh, but pretty much our, our university, our chancellor, um, who really, I think, you know, represents the, the, the CSU system, um, has rejected most of our proposals. And so right now we're in this process of fact-finding where um, the union um, and the university essentially creates, um, presents um, knowledge, research on these particular proposals and, and kind of advises each side, if you will, <laughs> of mm -hmm. what should be done. Um, but it's not looking too great, right? And, and, and it, it could mean a strike. It could mean a strike from the faculty if, if again, I think our, our proposals are, are not met. And, and these proposals not only affect faculty, they affect students as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like faculty conditions are student learning conditions as well. And so that's, that's one of my big pushes um, for our union, for our campus, for the whole CSU system is like, okay, you really want to retain women of color or faculty of color, then improve parental leave, right? Like we should not have to like come back halfway through the semester when we our bodies have not healed or we have not had any time to nurse to be with um, our babies. Um, I remember one of the big pieces was the, was the lack of lactation or nursing rooms um, on campus. I think there's like four in the whole university. Four. <laughs> and there's clearly, there's also parenting students, right? So clearly parenting students also need mm -hmm. them. Um, and that's what I mean by structures, like even like the physio physiology or the structures of the university itself are not always, right, catered um, to parenting faculty. Um, yeah, so there's those are just some yeah. of the few <laughs> examples I can think of that. Has there been an explanation as to why these proposals are being rejected? Money is usually the reason, right? Like, we don't have the money for that. We don't have the, that's It's always money. But 
that's uh, as you have dug up through your own personal research and um, as we have done our re- like the money is there right um, the chancellor got a huge raise right the chancellor gets I think I saw um, paid more than the president right but somehow we can't afford to pay give a raise to faculty or hire more counselors right mm-hmm. um, and so it means cutting from the top right like if we're really gonna commit to students and faculty, but it's usually money. <laughs> What's the saying? Where there's a need, there's a way. <laughs> exactly, and so it's it's frustrating to, to have to prove why we're worthy of like getting a raise, of why lecture faculty should have more security, why mm-hmm. parenting faculty should have better parental leave. Um, and so that's been really hard for me as a mom. Uh, during the pandemic, my son's childcare center closed. He was 10 months old. Oh gosh. So not only am I trying to figure out how I'm gonna get my classes online, I also have a 10 month old at home. And again, there was no support from the, fact, uh, from the university uh, in terms of like, what am I supposed to do, right? Like I don't have childcare because the pandemic has created a, a childcare crisis. Um, and it was just like, figure it out. <laughs> I remember asking, like I said, for a nursing lactation room in my building because there wasn't one, right? Uh, many of our faculty share offices, so that also makes it hard, right? If you're like in a nurse or pump, you want some privacy to do that and deserve that privacy. Um, and so again, it's these structures, again, that really make it difficult affordable childcare, right? The childcare on campus here is for students, which rightfully so should be, but there isn't any support for faculty, right? Like I I pay like half of my salary goes towards my son's uh, childcare. Like that's how expensive childcare is, right? So how come the university, again, if we're really talking about equity, why aren't we talking it like why aren't we creating a child care center for faculty that's affordable that's accessible <laughs> so i love being a mom it's absolutely like the proudest thing i can be i can think of um but it's hard too it's hard i think to to be a faculty member and to be a mom but he's the reason also why I do the work I do. <laughs> yeah. That's really sweet, but also like very depressing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, are there any last notes that you'd like to give our listeners or anything you'd like the university to take, to take away from this conversation or just from w- what's going on? Yeah. Um, for, for students, I, I think... We're going to need, um, and and here I'm talking through my CFA, like our union perspective is like, we're going to need students to to support, right? Because if a strike does happen, right, like we need our students to support us as well. And to understand that our working conditions are also going to affect their learning conditions. Like we're doing this so that they have better learning conditions, right? We're trying to get Mm -hmm. you better counselors. And, and so I, this is a call for students to, to, to support us, to, to show up for, for your professors if, if we do end up going that path of a potential strike. Um, for the university, um, I feel like we have been saying this for years, for generations. I am not the first person to say this. Um, 
faculty way before me, way before I got here to Sac State, faculty like Dr. Elvia Ramirez, um, they have been doing this work. They have been speaking out. Um, and so we're at a point where, like, when are we actually going to see actions, right? Because, again, words only get us so far. We need action and, like, real action in terms of um, those changes, right? They now have a plan, right? They, they made us go through this whole year of, like, <laughs> create a plan. So now they have the plan. And there are some excellent recommendations. So now I would like the university to, to really put some some effort to, to thinking about those actions, like what does that mean? Um, and to work closely with our union because the union has also been pushing all these issues. Like we have been doing this work. Um, I would like action is, is, is I, like I'm done with the circle groups, the conversations, the focus groups, like you have the data. <laughs> like, let's see some action now. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So yes, that, that, I'd like to close out with that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in today and for giving us all this knowledge. And you know, I wish you the best. Thank you, Mercy. Um, as, a, as a Latina professor, <laughs> trying to balance all of this yes. that you just told me yes. and anything that's coming, like strike and thank you, everything else. But thank you for coming in. Thank you. I appreciate it.